Father in heaven, we thank you so much, Lord, for this morning. We're grateful, Lord, for this uh, wonderful uh, opportunity and the songs that we sung, uh, the testimony that we've heard. What a blessing, Lord, it's been uh, for us. What an encouragement it is, Lord, for us to be able to uh, have that kind of confidence and trust and dependence upon you, Lord. Thank you so much, Lord, for what you've done in the lives of uh, Vikrant and Pratibha and their children, and their family, and Salmi, and just the ways in which they can look back and see your faithfulness, Lord, things that weren't expected in a way in the past, how beautifully and in a, such a timely way you brought it to pass to meet all of their needs, Lord. And so we rejoice with them, and I pray that it would only serve to uh, give us greater confidence uh, in you, Lord, their own testimony. So, Lord, we, we just thank you, Lord. We ask, Father, that you'd bless this time now as we look into your word. We need your help to understand it, to comprehend it, to apply it in our lives. And we invite you, Holy Spirit, to do what only you can do uh, as the word is ministered, that you would minister it to each of our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we'll uh, turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. And we're actually going to look from verse 17 uh, to verse 25. We looked at 1 to uh, 16 last week. And so we're going to just pick up from uh, verse 17 for us this morning. Now, this section describes for us the faith uh, of Abraham. And it defines biblical faith and what it looks like. That was the, the title of the message, the flyer that you got said, Biblical Faith. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. What is biblical faith? What does it actually look like? Now, this is important. It's important because faith is a word that is misunderstood. Uh, it's a concept, if you like, that is maybe misapplied or, or not proper, properly uh, understood. And, and, it, and biblical faith is, is really a misunderstood idea, so to speak. And I say biblical faith because there is an unbiblical faith, if you can call it faith, but there is an unbiblical kind of faith or trust or, 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 or something like that that we uh, talk about as well. There is a faith that is cerebral or mental in that sense, not mental as in mad, but mental as in of the mind alone with no resulting transformation or action in the person's life. There's that kind of a faith where people, you know, where people think, you know, I believe in God, but they fail to follow him. Meaning they believe some facts and information about God, but it has no effect and bearing on the way that they live. And James talks about that kind of belief. And he says this very interestingly in James chapter 2 verses 19 and 20. Yep, it's there. He says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Meaning that if your faith doesn't result in a life change, in transformation, in, in something in the way you live your life, it's not really faith. It's just something that you've probably conjured up in your mind, but it has no bearing on your life. Belief that isn't manifest in the way a person's, person lives is not real faith. It's dead faith, if it can be called faith at all. So that's one uh, description of an unbiblical kind of faith. 
But there's another description of an unbiblical kind of faith and that is faith itself without Christ or God as the object of that faith. And you probably heard people say, right, in this world, things like, you got to have faith. In what? In whom? But no, no, you got to have faith. We love to throw that out. Just have faith, man. In what? In whom? But the idea is if you believe sincerely enough, whatever it is, you'll manage, you'll get through. If you have faith. But sincerity doesn't save anyone. Don't be fooled by that. Sincerity doesn't save anyone. You see, biblical faith is rooted in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's rooted on who God is. It's founded on that confidence and trust. He is the object of our faith. It's not just believe sincerely, but believe in God, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is biblical faith. And so it's unbiblical to just simply throw around the word faith and have faith, have faith. No, no. In what? In whom? What are you talking about? That's important. And so what we see in Abraham's life, whom Paul uses as an example here, is biblical faith. Biblical faith. And so we want to look at his journey a little bit and, and look at his faith and, and see what a, a godly example it is for us. And so come with me to your, in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4, verse 17, all right? And so we've got, we're going to observe a few things about biblical faith. Firstly, biblical faith rests upon who God is. Biblical faith rests upon who God is. Look at verse uh, 17. Here's what he says. And Paul is writing, he says, I have made you the father of many nations. And so he's quoting something from the Old Testament. And Paul is writing it here. And he's God speaking to Abraham. He says, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed. So Abraham believed God. What did he believe about God? Here's what he says. Who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. This is the faith that we're talking about. This confidence in this God who does these amazing things. But let's just look at the first part of that quote over here before we get to the second part of that verse. All right, The first part of the verse uh, is uh, Romans 4.17 is a quote from Genesis chapter 17. So if you want to uh, maybe flip back in your Bibles. It'll be on the screen, but if you've got a Bible, turn back. It's really good to be able to look in your Bible. Genesis chapter 17. And I want to show you a couple of references over here. Verses uh, 3 uh, to verse 5. And this is a little bit more of a description of that meeting that God has with Abraham when he says, I have made you the father of many nations. So here's what it says in Genesis 17 verse 3 onward. Then Abraham fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I love that. You see, God changed his name to make a point. To make a point. Because his name was previously Abram. And it's a very subtle thing. We miss it in our Bibles. It's there though. His name was Abram. 
which means exalted father. And some people think it was a reference to his father. Your father was an exalted father, Terah, right? And something of that nature. But it just meant exalted father. And God said, you know what? I'm going to confirm my promise to you and I want you to remember it. And therefore your name is not Abram, but Abraham, which means what? You're the father of a multitude of nations. Imagine this guy was, you know, he was 90, almost 99 years old at this point. He had lived with the name Abram all this time. Have you ever changed your name? We, we had to correct Leah's name recently for some class 10 server. My goodness, it's a headache over here. You have to put a paper ad, you have to go to the Gazette of India, all these documents you have to submit. My goodness. But Abraham lived with this name, Abram, all these years, and God said, I want to change it because I made a promise to you, and every time you remember the name change, you remember what? My promise to you. My promise that you're a father of a multitude of nations. Now, this was a bizarre thing because Abraham didn't have a son. He didn't have an heir. He didn't have an offspring through his wife, Sarah. He had no children, so to speak. And so he's like, okay, you want to change my name? Okay. And he believes him, in fact. He believes God and he, he becomes Abraham. But it's not just Abraham over here. I want to come a little bit further with me in Genesis 17. Because God speaks to Sarah as well. Verses 15 and 16. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife. Look at her name over there. It's different, isn't it? As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And then he tells, her, tells him why. He says, because I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. She was 90 years old. And then he says, I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Similar kind of a thing. And she also had a new name at this old age. And this was a name of promise. That you will now be the mother of a multitude of nations. Not only that, kings will come from your descendants. Amazing. And so she was known as Sarah from that point on. What an amazing way in which this happens. What a miracle this was when God fulfilled his promise to them a year or so later. Now, the Bible tells us over there, as well as Paul, you know, in Genesis 15, he quotes it over here in Romans 4, that Abraham believed God concerning this prophecy. And you have to ask the question, why did Abraham believe God concerning this promise? Why did he believe God? Wasn't childbearing for them an impossibility, humanly speaking? And I, I want you to just pause on that for a moment because we have these impossibilities in our lives, don't we? We have these. I mean, the picture I sent you last night is this lit, I don't know if you looked at it close, but there's this tiny little person standing in front of this massive mountain. And sometimes life is like that. Impossible. We have people in our congregation who are praying for a child. And it seems impossible. But not just that, many other seemingly impossible, impossibilities in our life. And so this is an encouragement to us. And we'll, we'll dig into this a little bit more. But Abraham believed in this promise because his faith 
rested on who God is. That's where his faith rested. His faith rested on who God is. Look at the, the description of God in the second part of verse 17, and it's awesome. Here's what it says. He says, he is the one who gives life to the dead. This is the God we're talking about, the one who gives life to the dead. And, and by the way, we know that Abraham believed this with all his heart because Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19, which is the chapter on faith, takes us back to Abraham when Abraham was asked to sacrifice your son, your only son, Isaac. It tells us that Abraham was willing to take God up on that because, Hebrews eleven nineteen says, he considered that God was able to raise him from the dead. Same thing. And Paul picks up on that and he says that this is, Abraham believed in a God who was able to raise the dead. Humanly speaking, impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Not only that, this is the God who calls into existence things that do not exist. And this takes us back to Genesis where God created everything out of nothing. You know, the Hebrew idea is ex nihilo, out of nothing. And in fact, in fact the same chapter on, on faith, we're talking about faith. Hebrews chapter 11 talks about this. In Hebrews chapter 11 verse 3 it says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. In other words, what is seen was made out of nothing because God spoke the word. Amazing. And I think both these ideas, raising from the dead, making out of nothing, both these ideas, Paul brings them together to show us that God can do things that are humanly impossible because he is God. He can do things that are seemingly impossible from a human perspective. And Abraham believed this about God. He had that confidence that God was able to do these things if he chose to do them. He could do them. That's where his confidence was. That's biblical faith. It has a firm object. God was the object of Abraham's faith. You know, faith, biblical faith is not blind faith. It's not us just sort of casting ourselves and hoping for the best. No, it's a faith that is based on the character and, and the nature and the promises of God. It's a, it's a faith that's based on the goodness and the greatness of God, which we know through the word of God. That's why, by the way, it's great to have testimonies. If you've noticed, we started having testimonies at our Sunday services a lot more. We do that not because we want to show off but what God is doing in my life, but we do that because it's an opportunity for you to see what other people have experienced of God in their life. And hopefully it will build your faith and confidence as well. That's the point of this. And that's what Abraham's story is, a testimony for us as well. So that's the first one, right? So biblical faith rests upon who God is. Let's come to the second one. Biblical faith is hope against hope. That's an odd one, isn't it? Biblical faith is hope against hope. It's hope against hope. Look at verse 18 of Romans chapter 4. 
Here's what it says. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. That's interesting. In hope, he believed against hope. An early church uh, preacher, John Chrysostom, he says it like this. He says it was against man's hope in hope which is of God. So there's two kinds of hopes, if you like, working over here. There's this worldly kind of hope and there's this hope that comes from God. That's basically what he's saying. And so we see, you know, in, in verse 19, from a human point of view, Abraham had every reason to give up any attempt to have a child. He had every reason from a human perspective to say, look, that ship has sailed. It's done. He had every reason to do that. But he doesn't. You see, there is a worldly kind of hope that is founded on the evidence of reason and common sense. And we kind of like that, right? It's just very reasonable, very thought through, very rational. It's more calculated, if you like. When we have certain evidence, we just hope for the best based on that evidence without any certainty of it. And that's a human kind of hope, so to speak. But Abraham had to hope against this hope because his situation was absolutely hopeless from a reasonable point of view. That's why Paul says in hope he believed against hope. You see, hope by its nature is forward-looking. It's forward-looking. We don't hope for things that we already have. We hope for things that we don't have because we long for it. We hope that those things will come to pass. And God promised that Abraham would become the father of many nations, descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky. That's actually a quote again from Genesis, as numerous as the stars of the heavens. And Abraham looked forward to that being accomplished because he trusted in God. I, you know, I remember when, um, well, you know, just a year, well, the first year of our marriage, you know, Sharon and I were a few months into our marriage and we began considering opportunities uh, to go for theological studies. And there was this college in uh, Adelaide in South Australia that I had come to know of. I knew other people who had studied over there. And so I thought, you know what? And I checked out some other colleges here as well, and I felt like I wanted to go there. But it was illogical, to say the least. You know, two of our friends just that very year had, been, had their visas rejected, their student visas rejected. And here we were, this young couple... No savings, nothing to tie us down over here, no great bank balance to boast of to pay any fees over there. We wanted to go and study in Australia. And it, you know, it was pretty foolish when we, when we, when we kind of think back to it uh, even now. Moreover, I didn't have all of my college papers in order, but that's a story for another day, right? I just didn't have all of the things that I needed in order to be able to even apply to this course and get accepted to this course in this college in Australia. Just didn't seem reasonable. But Sharon was great. She just said, you know what? I'm going to hope against hope. 
put your papers in, we'll see what happens, right? And so I, you know, put my papers in, and the first thing that happened was the college wrote back to me and they said, it's fine, we'll take you, we'll give you a seat in the college. And so that was the first step uh, that was a miracle in that sense. And then we put in our papers to apply for the visa, and that was another mammoth task, knowing all that, you know, the strictness of the visa office, what all they require, and so on and so forth. I didn't have much hope again, but we said, we'll put it in. One month passed, two months passed, not a word. So finally, I said to Sharon, we had, we'd, in fact, we had booked our tickets because we had to book and show tickets and all that stuff. And it was five days before we had to fly out. So I said, look, I'm just going to go and see what's going on. And so I drove down to the High Commission. And those days, there was no VFS. You go straight to the High Commission. And I walked in over there, and they took my slip, and they said, please wait, Mr. Chandran. And about 10 minutes later, they called me, and they said, here's your passports. Your visas are done. I'm like, why didn't you tell us? Why put us through all this? But of course, I was thrilled about it. And we went back, and we packed our house, and we went off to Australia. But I remember that first week that we were there. And I just, there was one afternoon we were staying with people that uh, were hosting us till we found a place. And I just remember being absolutely terrified. Absolutely terrified. Because we had, I think we'd gone with like $2,000. That goes very quickly. Because you pay the house security and get some stuff for us, gone. Sharon was two months pregnant with our first child. And I'm just lying over there and I'm like, tears, tears streaming down my face. I'm like, Lord, what have I done? How can I get out of this? And then I turned and I looked at her and she was fast asleep, blissful. And I tell you, there was even a smile on her face because there was that calmness and that confidence and that assurance in God. And it gave me great confidence. And of course, we went through the next three years Tons of experiences of God's faithfulness and goodness that we can, you know, even add to our sister Pratibha's account of God's providence in our lives. And we absolutely treasure those years that we went through. Amazing. Now, I share this with you, not to say that God will always give us what we want. That's not the point of this analogy. But I share it with you to illustrate the fact that God can do impossible things that we might look at and say that's never going to happen. God can do impossible things. And you may be in an impossible situation in your life. Maybe with finances, maybe with your relationship, maybe with your marriage or your children. And it just feels like it's overwhelming. You and I, like Abraham, we have a God who calls who created out of nothing, who raises the dead, who gives life. That's the God we worship. He is the object of our faith. And we ought to have that kind of confidence in him. Biblical faith and hope is on the promises of God. It's what God promises. And I want to give you a few references for your encouragement this morning. Hebrews chapter 13 verses 5 and 6. It says this. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. I love that. 
You see, God promises not to necessarily remove all our financial troubles, but he promises never to leave us, never to forsake us in the midst of those troubles. Or then in Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7, he says over here, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And you know, our life can be filled with anxieties, and God says, pray, trust in me, and you will experience my peace. Or in terms of our eternity, I love this, this benediction in Jude 24 and 25. It says this, Now to him, that's to God, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless when before the presence of God, before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. God promises to carry us through this life, to keep us from stumbling, and to present us faultless, blameless. You like that? Blameless before the glory of his presence. Amazing. God promises to do that. And this is the God we trust we have confidence in. And so biblical faith is hope against hope. Don't look at the world. Don't listen to the world, so to speak. Trust in God. Trust in God. Let's come to the next couple of them. And I'm going to spend a little bit less time on these. They're, just, they're kind of subsets of the previous one. But here's a third observation on biblical faith. Is that biblical faith does not weaken when faced with obstacles. It doesn't weaken when faced with obstacles. Look at verse 19. It says this. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Look at these obstacles. He was 99. Sarah was 90. She was barren. These were massive obstacles, but he didn't waver. He didn't weaken in his faith when he considered these obstacles. He remain steadfast because God had promised him and he changed both their names also. You can't go back on this. He changed their names. It was a firm promise. And he believed God. He remained steadfast. You know, the, the pastor and theologian John Calvin writes this in his comments on this text. Here's what he says. He said, um, <clears throat> Let us also remember that the condition of all of us is the same with that of Abraham. All the things around us are in opposition to the promises of God. He promises immortality. We are surrounded with mortality and corruption. He declares that he counts us just. We are covered with sins. He testifies that he is propitious and kind to us, meaning that he, he, he pays for our sin and that propitious is that, that's the idea of it. He is propitious and kind to us, but outward judgments threaten his wrath. What then is to be done? 
And here's what he says. He says, we must, with closed eyes, pass by ourselves and all things connected with us that may hinder or prevent us from believing that God is true. Sometimes, shut your eyes and your ears to the world and its voices and even the voices in your own head that may bring doubt and confusion about the promises of God. They, 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 can, they can try and weaken us in our faith. But biblical faith does not weaken when faced with obstacles. It pushes through. It pushes through. It finds its way through because it is firmly focused on who God is. And the fourth one is biblical faith does not waver in moments of unbelief. It doesn't waver in moments of unbelief. Look at verses 20 and 21. Here's what he writes. He says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. You know, when Paul says, no unbelief made him waver, he doesn't mean that Abraham never had momentary hesitation. And we see this. We see this in Abraham and Hagar. There was that momentary sort of, maybe let me try and solve this on my own. And if we're honest, you know, life is filled with momentary hesitations, doubts, unbelief, so to speak. That's why we get worried. We get anxious. We get angry. We get bitter. We become greedy. We become ambitious because we're trying to secure ourselves because our eyes for those moments are turned away from God. We're shielded by something else. Our eyes are covered from the magnificence and the glory and the greatness of God. And we stumble along a little bit and we have those moments where we hesitate and we doubt. But biblical faith finds its way through that by avoiding a deep-seated and permanent attitude of distrust and inconsistency in our relationship with God and his promises. Unlike the double-minded man that James speaks of in James chapter 1 verses 6 to 8, the person who, dis you know, unlike the double-minded person who displays a deeply rooted division in his attitude toward God, Abraham maintained a single-minded trust in the fulfillment of God's promises. That's what we're talking about. Now I want you to look at the rest of verse 20. He continues by telling us that Abraham, in fact, grew strong. He grew strong in his faith. And I love how one commentator puts this. Listen to this. This is, a, uh, this is by Douglas Moore. This is what he says. He writes, In what way did Abraham's faith grow strong? In the sense that anything gains strength in meeting and overcoming opposition. Muscles, when weights are raised. Holiness, when temptation is successfully resisted. So also Abraham's faith gains strength from its victory over the hindrance created 
by the conflict between God's promise and the physical evidence. He pushed through. He pushed through. And when he did that, his faith glorified God because he, was, because he demonstrated that he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. You know, people will tell you that it's impossible. Circumstances, situations will tell you that things are impossible. You can't save your marriage. You can't go for this particular thing or that particular thing. You're not able to get through this. You're never going to be able to overcome this. You know, it's, it's just going to, and not just people, but everything in this world is going to tell you that. But biblical faith looks through those things to the promises of God, to the purposes of God. And that's why it's so important for us to be familiar with God's word. We don't say read your Bible every day because of some religious activity that you've got to tick your box on. No, no. You've got to be familiar with who God is. I mean, think about your own marriage, right? You, you grow in your confidence towards your spouse as you get to know them. Hopefully that's true, but that's typically what should happen. And as you live with them and interact with them and the years go by, your confidence in them is stronger than it was probably before because you know them a little bit more. And it's true in, in our relationship with God. Unless we know him, how are we going to trust him? And so it's vitally important for us to walk in close fellowship with God. Now, why is Paul telling us all this? Why is he telling us about faith? And the reason why he's doing this is because biblical faith is a saving faith. This is not an ordinary thing to be trifled with. This faith is what saves us. And so you've got to get it right. You've got to have a faith like Abraham's faith that saves you. And Paul ends this section, and I'm going to read these verses, and I'll close in Romans 22, uh, 4, verse 22 and 20 to 25. Here's what he says in concluding uh, this section. He says this, That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe. Same faith like Abraham you know, when, when God counts him as righteous, he counts us also as righteous when we believe. And here's what he says. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead. Who raised Jesus. Let me read that again. Who was raised from. The, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And I love that last part, right? He was raised for our justification. You see, it's the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ that makes absolutely everything else certain about what God has said. Everything else certain. You can argue till you're blue in the face, but you can't get around the resurrection of Jesus. And if Christ was raised from the dead, absolutely everything else in the word of God is perfectly true and confirmed for us. I want to give you a moment to just bow your heads and, and think about what God has said to you, to us this morning. And again, lots of things have been said, but I'm certain that there are 
couple of things that the Lord has impressed on your heart as you deal with particular situations and circumstances in your life. Pray and ask the Lord to help you focus, to cut out the din and the sounds and the voices around you, the distractions, and help you focus on who He is, to know Him in a deep and real way, to understand His greatness and His goodness and the perfections of His glory. And in doing that, as you grow in your relationship with God, to also then grow in your faith, in your trust, in your confidence in God. Father, we thank you for your word. And I pray that you would help us to apply it in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.